0: So we are in John chapter 12, start of John chapter 12. A little logistic note, right after this in John is where we get into the triumphal entry. So we're going to skip that until we get to Easter time. So we'll probably jump ahead to the end of John and we'll save Easter for Easter, just for the fun of it. We could do Easter like three or four times. I wouldn't have any problem with that, but y'all might get sick of it. So. We'll just uh, we'll save the triumphal entry for for Easter time and we'll we'll go through that at the at the appropriate time. We're in John chapter twelve, verses uh, one through eleven. This is a, a verse. It's all about worship. It's all about worship. And in here, we get to see a positive and a negative in this moment of worship. And it is this beautifully intimate portrait of worship. And it is just unique and absolutely wonderful. It's one of those passages that every time that I read it, maybe you don't have the same experience, but every time I read this, it sticks with you for a few days. It's uncomfortable. We're not used to this kind of intimacy being shown. So it's good to spend some time here because it really gives us a great picture of the heart of worship. So again, we're in John chapter 12. We're in verses 1 through 11. It says, Six days before the Passover... Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. So I gave you guys those little pieces of paper that we're going to start off with. I don't know if you guys listen to the Michael Jr. podcast, but I do. And on there was a, a great point, that, um, both uh, Michael Jr. and his co-host, uh, um, Pastor Kyle, that, that are on there, they both have adopted children, and one of the exercises they had to do when they went the, the adoption process, they were given a piece of paper, this piece of paper, and on there they were asked to do what I'm going to ask you to do, and that is to circle the traits there of if you were adopting a child or of your loved ones or your spouse or whatever, that you would be willing to live with, that you would be willing to take in with you that you would be most accepting of, okay? So as we go through, just put that in there, just as you go through, and you can circle as many as you want to, but just circle as many of those that that you would be willing to accept into your home, understanding that, you know, when you're taking in kids from adoption, sometimes they have issues, sometimes they have trauma, sometimes they, they bring things with them, and you have to know with open eyes what you're getting into. So, when you have a moment, like say as we're going through the the passage here, just circle some of those traits, some of those things that you would be willing to live with. So, again, like I said, if you were selecting your spouse or your children, what of these traits would you either most desire, or if you don't see something that you like, what you could live with, what you would be okay with having in your home? So, we'll move into our recap of last week. If we go to John eleven fifty four 54 through 57, this is right after, right, we, we went through, Lazarus was raised from the dead, and then we went through the reaction to that. And it says, therefore, Jesus no longer moved publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness, to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. It's about 12 miles away from Jerusalem, where they went. And when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover— Many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. Remember, we were talking about, um, uh, not too long ago, we were talking about they, they found Hezekiah's tunnel, and they were recently excavating the pool of Siloam at the, the bottom of Jerusalem. It's, it's huge. It's like three uh, modern swimming pools. This is the main pool where when you would come into the city for Passover, it was ceremonial clean, it was fresh running water from Hezekiah's spring, And that's where you would bathe yourself. You would get ceremonial clean in preparation for Passover. And you can picture there's this city of, you know, maybe 150, maybe 250,000 people swells to over a million every year for Passover. So all of these people come in maybe a few weeks, if you can afford it, or a week or so ahead of the Passover. And they go through this process of getting themselves ritually clean, getting their lamb, doing all of those things, getting ready for Passover. So the disciples and Jesus are about 12 miles away, though. But the topic of conversation is, of course, Jesus. And this whole thing has been set up. We talked about it as almost like a, like a showdown where the tree priests and the Pharisees have issued orders. Verse 57, had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was which should report it so that they might arrest him. And they kept looking for Jesus. And as they stood in the, ter- the temple courts, they asked one another, what do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? That's the question. So you can remember that Lazarus at this point was raised from the dead. It says that with a loud voice, with a loud voice, Jesus said, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out of the tomb. Right here is the problem with having me up here. I, I apologize, but I have to try and picture Lazarus coming out of the tomb. And remember, he was wrapped in the burial clothes and either something really miraculous happened or probably the funniest scene in the Bible. Because if his feet were bound up, is he like hopping? Is he like, because his face is covered. Did he run into something? Did he trip? Did he fall? I don't know, probably not. It was probably much more majestic and much more wonderful than that. Was he lifted or was he carried to the door by I don't know, those things pop into my head because I'm just picturing this guy hopping around with his face covered running into walls. That didn't happen. It died in there, but that's where my mind goes, so I apologize. But it says, this is where that scene ends. It says, Therefore many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But, but, some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. So, the voice that that spoke the world into being says Lazarus come out and he is risen from the dead and many people who see that they come to faith, they come to believe and then some of them go to the Pharisees and tell them what Jesus had done it's a division Jesus is divisive and he tells us that over and over again he says I did not come to bring peace, I came to bring a sword I'm going to turn brother against brother and Fathers and mothers against their children. I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring the sword. And here it is. We see it. So the the Sanhedrin, the Council of 71, meet together to discuss not just the resurrection of Lazarus, but the entirety of Jesus' ministry. And it says this It says, What are we accomplishing? Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Oh, the horror. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. They're afraid. And we can relate to the fear. We can. Because believing in Jesus means giving up all that we hold dear. Because our God is a jealous God. And if you love money, or position, or comfort, or anything more than him, you are not his. And that is the fear this council expresses. They list three things they are afraid of losing power, and position, and nation, or their identity. They are the religious leaders of the Jews, but they are not servant leaders. They do not serve the people, the people serve them. Jesus says about them that they tie people up with burdens that they are not willing to carry, they have position. They are highly regarded in society. They are wealthy, they are comfortable, they are respected. Notice the first thing that the guy says is, we're losing believers. That's the first thing he lists off, is we are losing believers. We are losing influence. We're losing our audience. Isn't that the sad thing to list as the first thing you're afraid of losing, is losing your popularity? And notice what they haven't said. No argument has been made to say that Jesus is wrong. No witness has come forward to say that the miracles are fake. Nothing, nobody has said that Jesus was a fraud. And believe me, this council would have loved it if they could have found someone, if they could have paraded out to say, no, no, he's a fake, he's a fraud, get him out of here. They would have done it. But no one does. And even if they had, there were hundreds of other witnesses who would have said, No, I was there. I watched Lazarus come out of the tomb. Hundreds of people saw that. Even in front of the council, they cannot say that the miracles did not happen or that Jesus did something wrong. And it is funny that that thou shalt not bear false witness seems to hold. No one is taking a bribe to go before the council and lie about Jesus. That would be Judas that does that later. But their argument is simple. Preserve our power, preserve our position, and preserve our nation or our identity. So that's our first application for the day. We have to let go of those things. We have to let go of power and position. That even our identity, those things that we cling to, because if we can't walk away from everything today, then we're not His. If we can't lose our job tomorrow, if we can't, if our self-worth, if our worries about money are tied up in our job, let it go. Think about your identity, think about your nation. If You can't identify yourself only by saying, I'm a Christian. if Family and friends and co workers, your team, your tribe, your nation. No, it has to be child of God, first and foremost. That's what Jesus says. He says, Who are my brothers? Who are my mother and brother and sisters? Who are they? They're the people that are around me. They're my followers. That's who my family is. Those are tough words, aren't they? Those are really tough words. That's a high bar, isn't it? That's a big deal to let go of all of that, especially in our materialistic society, isn't it? That's some strong medicine to start off with, to say, no, you got to let go of all of that. It says, take up your cross and follow me. Let it go. You cannot be tied to those things. And that crashes us right into the prophetic verse of verse 50, where Caiaphas that corrupt and evil man who seeks to preserve his power and position and nation the man who called himself high priest, he says the words of God. He says, you do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. And John goes on to explain. He says, he did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation and not only for the nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them One, if we want to know why is Jesus going to die, why is he going to the cross, read verse 50. It is better for one to die than for the entire nation to perish. There it is, substitution. We're going to flesh this out, the same idea. We're going to beat this in in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. It says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. There it is. Why do we have a cross there? Why do we have a cross there? Because our Lord and Savior said, I got this. All that bad stuff, all the things that have stained you throughout your life, all of those things... I got it. I'm gonna take it. Because if I don't, I can't be with you, and I love you too much to not be with you. I love you too much for that. It's better, it's better for me to go to the cross than to let you perish. That's what he says. It's better. This is the better path. First John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. Well, certainly don't spare any words there, John. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And if we claim we have not sinned, we call him a liar and say his word is not in us. 1 Peter 1, verses 13 through 23. Have you got it yet? Last time. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. But, verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in this last time for your sake. Through him, you who believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart, for you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. Makes crazy, verse 53, doesn't it? Verse 53, John 11, 53, say, So from that day on they plotted to take his life. Lazarus is raised from the dead. All these works have come. All of his teachings have come. And they are so bent on keeping their power and their position and their identity that this is the solution. We're going to take his life. So Jesus and the disciples, they flee, they leave. They go to Ephraim. and. It depends on, on what timeline you follow. They were either in Ephraim for a few days, maybe you know five or six days, or maybe a few weeks. Some of the, the commentaries think that Luke 16 to 18 happened during this time while they were away. Either way, they go to Ephraim, then they come back. But in the light of Lazarus being raised from the dead, it gives the triumphal entry a little bit more meaning, doesn't it? these crowds that all witnesses, and all these people that have gathered at this house outside, now suddenly we understand why there is such a fervor when Jesus comes into Jerusalem. This event, the raising of Lazarus, has brought everything to the peak. It's a this big showdown. It's kind of this crazy event, right? Because we have Pilate marching in with his soldiers coming in for the Passover like every year he did. And then we have Jesus coming in riding a donkey and all the people shouting, Hosanna. Hosanna. And then in just a few short days they will be shouting, crucify him, crucify him. So Jesus and the disciples return to Bethany. We didn't get a smart comment out of Thomas this time. Last time it was yeah, let's go with him. We might die also. They don't get that this time. But they go back to Bethany. Now, it depends on your, your view where they are, where this house is. It doesn't say exactly what house it's in if you think that this is the same blessing that, it, that occurs in one of the other Gospels, then you would say that this is at uh, the house of Simon the Sirene. I personally think those are separate events, but we can have that argument later. So they go to this house, and they have a special dinner that is prepared in Jesus' honor. It says right there, therefore, because of what Jesus did raising Lazarus from the dead, they have hosted this dinner in Jesus' honor. So, it said, this is about worship it's a passage about worship john piper says this it says it is a beautiful thing when the worth of jesus and the love of his followers match when the value of his perfections and the intensity of our affections correspond that's the goal when we worship is this right here for our love to match with the value of his perfections for our intensity to correspond with Jesus. And we get a brief picture of what the dinner was like. Remember, it's springtime. It's six days before the Passover. There would be a fire burning downstairs for for cooking, and it would warm the upper room where they they would eat. They're all reclining around a low wooden table on thin cushions. Jesus and the disciples are there, as well as Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Martha is Martha. She is serving. There are women here today who are like Martha. Their bodies are always bent towards others, towards serving. They not only see what needs to be done, they do it. I don't, there's not enough praise in the world for Martha. Her worship is expressed in her work, and James says something about this. He says, religion that God our Father accepts is pure and faultless is this. To look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. It is Mary and Martha who do not doubt, do not flee in the face of the upcoming persecution. And we're going to say a little bit more about that in just a moment. But it is Mary and Martha who bear the grim burden of wrapping Jesus' body and anointing it with spices. It is Mary and Martha who are the first to see the risen Christ. As men, we are called to lead. We are called to be heads of our household. I struggle to be worthy of this. What about you guys? If you haven't remembered tomorrow's Valentine's Day. (laughs) Ephesians 5, 25 through 33 say, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ did what? Loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word And to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. We leave Mary's and Martha's. Let us be worthy of those gifts that we have been given. So Martha is serving. Lazarus is reclining at the table. Notice, again, not a word from him. We want words from him. The man who flew to the stars, we want him to tell us of his adventure on the other side. But John is firm. That is not the important part. That is not the point of the story. The important part is he died, came back, and reclines at the table with Jesus. Is there a stronger endorsement for Jesus? If you died and came back to life, what would you do? I'm going to Disneyland. No. No. He says, there's no place I would rather be than at the Master's feet. He's not anger, angry, he's not bitter, he's not anything. He says, no, I'm right here. I need to be at this dinner with Jesus. That's a ringing endorsement, isn't it? All those people that said, ah, you know, he's, he's from the devil, he's from Beelzebub, oh, you know, he's demon-possessed, that's how we can do these things. Lazarus would differ, wouldn't he? Lazarus would go, um, no, sorry. I'm here. I'm right here with this guy. We're picking teams. I know which team I want to be on. So I have a really bad analogy for you. I think I put it up there as another really bad. This is my golf analogy. Again, it's a really bad analogy. So let's say you play golf. Anybody here play golf? I don't play golf. You go out golfing with one of your friends, and his game is much improved from the last time you guys played. He is playing way better than he did before. Wouldn't you be curious? Like, man, how'd you get so much better? Did you go and take some lessons? What happened? He says, no, man, I I got this book. I got this book, and I started, I I read it, and then I started doing what it says. And I tell you what, it's it's been a game changer. Literally, my game has improved greatly. Man, I, I, I just can't seem to miss. It's fantastic. He tells you he read the book and he applied what the book taught him and his game improved. And you, you see his results. What you see on the course testify to what is in the book. And in the analogy though, like I said, it's a bad analogy. When your friend becomes a Christian, when you see the changes in their life, the hope, the resilience, when they tell you the secret to the improvement in their game is in the book. Listen. Listen. When they tell you they have come back from the dead, when they tell you they were lost and then found, when they tell you they were dead in their sins and then brought back to life, you should listen. Because the the analogy falls apart right here. Because when you play golf, at the end there's, you know, 18th hole, you tap in or whatever, and you count up your score, and you go to the 19th hole and grab a sandwich and a beer, and you talk about what you're going to do next week. here, the end of the round, it's too late. If you wait till the end, if you wait till the game's over, you missed your chance. Because once the game is over, it is too late. If you wait for the scorecard at the 19th hole, Jesus is going to be standing there, and it is too late. So Martha is serving, Lazarus is at the table with Jesus and the disciples. And Mary does something remarkable. Says verse three, then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. It's like a large soda bottle of of perfume, somewhere between twelve and sixteen ounces. Spike nard is in the honeysuckle family, but it only grows in the Himalayas in Nepal and India. That jar is valued at about twenty thousand dollars. Today, So we can do some speculating. This is all pure speculation. Was the family wealthy? There were lots of people at Lazarus's funeral. It could be they were wealthy and popular. It could be that this was the only valuable thing they had. They lived in a town called House of the Poor, or House of Poverty. That doesn't scream to me rich side of town or lifestyles of the rich and famous. That doesn't scream that. We don't know what this means monetarily to them. However, very few of us could afford a $20,000 bottle of perfume. And even fewer of us would ever use it to wash the feet of a friend. Was this planned? Did Mary and Martha and Lazarus pool their resources and buy this perfume specifically? Did they plan this moment? to show their love for Jesus? If we contrast this with Caiaphas in the previous chapter and Judas in this chapter, we get a picture. Mary and Martha and Lazarus are not afraid of losing their power and their position in their nation. They're not. Jesus is wanted by the authorities. They have issued an arrest warrant. And yet here they are with him, hosting a dinner in his honor. Here she is, here Mary is in this vulnerable position offering up this intimate moment of worship. I was talking to the worship team before service today. How many of us take time to prepare for worship throughout the week? Plan our moment when we're going to come here this Sunday. Plan what we're going to offer up. Plan how our heart's going to be and prepare so that when we come here to worship on Sunday, that we're ready. That we can sit at Jesus' feet and pour out our perfume and rub his feet with our hands and then wipe them with our hair. I mean, it's tough. It's a beautiful picture though, isn't it? And that's what she offers up. Imagine pulling down that precious... Irreplaceable jar. And it's something that once used, you can never get back. You take it to the table in front of, remember there's, there's people here, it's in front of family and friends and strangers. And then you sit down at the feet of Jesus. And his feet are probably rough, probably not too dirty, because they probably washed before dinner. But first century clean, not 21st century clean. And then you pour the perfume over his feet, and the smell is overwhelming, too strong, too much. But you rub and rub. And once you have rubbed those feet thoroughly, it's time to dry them. In a few days, Jesus himself will honor the disciples by washing their feet. He will wrap a towel around his waist and use the towel to dry their feet. Mary says... Proverbs 1631 says, gray hair is a crown of splendor that is attained in the way of righteousness. That's the crown that Mary takes, her hair and wipes Jesus' feet. That's her honor. She takes her long dark hair and wipes his feet. Now we need to take that heart, take that heart and apply it to the next time we worship. That love, that boldness, that intimacy to the next time we worship together. Judas, though, wasn't having it. Judas says, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. The hard part is, he's not wrong, is he? Every one of us living here now thinks, man, $20,000? We could do a lot with that, couldn't we, around here? 20,000 bucks? His statement is reasonable. Because if you handed me a check for $20,000, you would expect that money to be used to further our mission. Whether that's food bank or children's ministry or building or Jesus with the skin on or thinking about Ray and Candace out in Thailand, Myanmar or the jail ministry or the Gideons or, or Young Life, something. And if I took that and I poured it out on the ground, you might be a little bit upset with me. And I would think so. But Jesus is the exception. Jesus is the time to pour your heart out, to empty yourself, to let go, to give up everything that you have. He is the one time when it's okay. He is the one time when we need to be reckless, when we need to be... Just out there. We need to give everything that we have. We need to fall down at his feet like Mary and like Peter. We need to rush to him. We need to cry out to him. Jesus is the exception. We see this in Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 19. And it is rare. It says, now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, Go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Only one of them, only one of them came back. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. In front of everyone, he's praising God. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Judas says sensible words, words that are practical, but they are not from a good heart. See, he kept the money from the, for the disciples. He kept the money bag, and he was stealing. Verse 6, he did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Real quick, like, how y'all doing on the list? How you guys doing on your, on your pieces of paper? Got it signed up. You think you got a pretty good list there? Okay. I think, and this is just me speculating, I think that meeting of the Sanhedrin and the orders to arrest Jesus were the breaking point for Judas. I think he thought he was going to gain, he was going to gain position and power and identity by hanging out with Jesus. He was on the train. All he had to do was play the game And he was going to be in on the ground floor. I think it was a lot like Jesus' brothers in John chapter 7, where they say, it says, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. Let everyone see the miracles. See the show. You want to be a public figure, don't you? Show yourself to the world. And Jesus finally did. Finally. Jesus did this massive, incredible public miracle. They literally saw the hand of God come down and touch the earth, and a dead man walked out of the grave. Hundreds of people saw it. And what happened? Strangely, they didn't get an invitation to be on the Johnny Carson show. No, the president didn't ask them to come to the White House. Instead the Sanhedrin issued an arrest warrant. Wanted posters across Judea with the words, wanted Jesus of Nazareth. And Judas decides it's time to get while the getting is good. I have a straight comparison for you, though. might, hopefully, you're thinking about going the way of Judas, hopefully change your mind. It's just straight money value. So take this what it's worth. Mary's worship is worth about $20,000. Judas' betrayal is about $1,000. And if someone asks you what is better, we know. We know what is better. Does worship or work better? We know. Luke chapter 10, verse 38 through 42. It says, Martha, Martha, Lord answered. You worried, are, are worried and upset about many things, but few things are, indeeded, are, are needed or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. That's when Mary was sitting at the master's feet, listening to what he said. Right there, we know. What's better, work or worship? Worship. Jesus said so. If the choice is to be busy or to take time to worship... Take time to worship. And what is better? Worship or betrayal? What's better? Worship. We have it right here. $20,000, $1,000. And it costs Judas his life. He doesn't even get to keep the money. He throws it on the floor in the temple. And they use it to buy the field where he kills himself. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Jesus gives three reasons, three reasons to Judas. First one is, it was intended for the day of my burial. We're going to leave that one for last. Number two, you will always have the poor among you. And then number three, you will not always have me. So first one, number two, you will always have the poor among you. We just talked about this briefly, but Jesus is the exception if your heart, if your ministry is to serve the poor, have at it. That ministry is desperate for help. Anyone here, any one of us right now, tomorrow, could spend the rest of our lives serving the poor. And it will be a life well spent. You will never run out of opportunities to serve. Our culture has changed quite a bit. You know, our, our grandparents in the generations before all belonged to civic organizations, organizations dedicated to making our society better. Whether it was the Moose Lodge, or the Elks Lodge, or the, the auxiliary lodges, even the tycoons of industry, those great steel magnets that, that built their empires on the backs of virtually slave labor, even they realized the folly of their wealth and turned to philanthropists in their old age trying to buy their way into heaven. We've lost that, we've lost that part serving others, but if you're sitting here today and don't know how to start serving God, food bank is next month. Catholic outreach always needs help serving meals. Go pick up trash along the river, but take a couple of friends because it's not really safe. But you can spend your life, and again, it will be a life well-lived if you serve the poor. And Jesus tells this to Judas. He's saying, I am the exception, Judas. I am God incarnate. I am the Messiah, You can go out of here and spend the rest of your life serving the poor. But please, Judas, don't go down the road you're looking at. Turn back. Even if you don't believe now, even if you aren't there now, go and serve the poor. But don't go where you were thinking of going. There's a couple of verses that I have here on love of money. and That's in 1 Timothy 6 and Matthew 6, 24. We're going to skip over them, but they're there in your message map. He says to Judas, Don't betray Jesus Jesus for money. Go serve the poor. Give up the money and the power and the position and the identity and go serve the poor. Look at Mary. She has it right. She has chosen what is better. Number three, You will not always have me with you. He says, Leave her alone, Judas. You will not always have me with you. When you guys are ever jealous of the disciples? Anyone? I am, of the the time these folks had with Jesus. It's tempting to think, right, that I would have been better than Judas, that I would have been better than the Sanhedrin, that I would have been better than these folks. But the truth is, I would have been right there with them. One day, I would have been chanting, Hosanna, Hosanna. The next morning, I would have been shouting, crucify him, crucify him. But Jesus says something we should remember. This moment is unique in history. He is the Messiah, the Word incarnate. He is God made flesh dwelling among us. And this has only happened once in history, and it will not happen again until the end of the world. When we see Jesus descending on the clouds, it will be time to turn in our scorecards. Jesus, fully man, fully God, born of woman. His time on earth was limited. He says, you won't always have me with you. We have the seven I am statements in John. I put them on the left side of your your bulletin there. John 8.21 says, I am going away and you will look for me and you will die in your sin because where I go, you cannot come. And that is what he is saying to Judas. This is a picture in this room of the throne room of God. I don't know if you guys see that. Jesus and the twelve are sitting around the table, just like they will be at the end times. The room, the house, is filled with worship and with the smell of perfume. It says that there's incense burning in the throne room. And everyone in that room has been touched and has been blessed by the worship that Mary has offered up. In that very room, in Lazarus, death, death has been defeated. Lazarus has been raised from the dead and is living proof of the resurrection of the life and of the life everlasting. God is there, dwelling among them. The voice that created the world is speaking. The hands that poured out the dust that form Adam and Eve are drinking and hugging. The breath of God is there. And Jesus says, this won't last. I have to leave. So let her have Open your eyes, open your ears, open your mind. Breathe. The kingdom is at hand and you are missing it. Eat the bread of life. Drink the living water. See by the light. Go to the door. He is right there in the room and he is offering himself. He is the resurrection and the life. He says, leave her alone, Judas. You won't always have me with you. I'm a little jealous of that. But Jesus says something amazing. He says, You know what? You guys, sitting here in fruit, have it better. What? John 16, 7 says, But very truly, I tell you, it is good that I am going away. Because then you get the advocate, the Holy Spirit. And if I go, I will send him to you. And the last thing, leave her alone, Judas. This was meant for my burial. See, Jesus knows Mary and Martha, he knows their hearts knows they will stay with him as he is betrayed and arrested and beaten and crucified they will be there and they need this worship this time where their hearts meet his worth can you imagine Mary because just in a few days she's going to see those feet that she wiped with her hair bloody and driven through with a nail she's going to see the man whose feet she had fallen at who sat and learned that. She's going to see him flogged and hanging on the cross. So what carried them through? What carried Mary and Martha through the crucifixion? What got them out of bed on the first Sunday morning of the new covenant? I listened to Martha's words from, uh, from chapter 11, and I asked myself, How they sounded to her as she cried herself to sleep while Jesus was in the tomb. It says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, what? He said, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And then Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe it? Do you believe this, Martha? Do you believe it while I'm on the cross? Do you you believe while your brother is dead for four days? Do you believe while I'm in the tomb?" Do you believe when you get up on Sunday, when you and Mary get up, when you go have to wake your sister up because you got to gather the spices and head down to the tomb to wrap my body? Verse 27, she said, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who has come into the world. I think all of them needed this blessing. I think this time of heart to heart is what helped This is the fire that warmed them on those dark nights when everything seemed to have gone wrong. Leave her alone, Judas. Let her keep it for the day of my burial. So how do we keep Mary's heart and Martha's faith in the face of adversity? What keeps us from throwing up our hands and saying, oh, well, so much for that. Thought it was going to be different, but I guess not. And these moments when our worship meets Jesus' worth, that is the value of worship. It is the oil that fills our lamp. It is the song we sing when the dark when the night is dark and lonely. There, in the face of losing, of losing our friends, of losing whatever it is, that is the time when we can worship, when our love For Christ is not meant to be moderated or throttled or stifled; it is meant to be extravagant and luxurious. So love Him with everything you got. So how'd you guys do? Got your sheets? Fill them out? No, I'm running a little bit late. Sorry for that. Because the conclusion is pretty obvious, isn't it? Because Jesus circled every single one of those traits on that sheet every single one. He said, yeah, I want them all. There's not a single one of those things that I don't want in my house. There's not a single one of those things that I won't take. I'll take them all. I don't care. Come to me. Changes our heart of worship a little bit, doesn't it? So let's vow to love him with everything we got. Father, Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for your word. Thank you for, thank you for taking us. Thank you for giving us this time that we have on the earth. Thank you for the next breath. Father, we we lift this up to you that as we go out into this week that those people who are lost, who are hurting, who, who need you, Father, we could partner with you, that we could be your hands and feet, that we could help reach someone for you. Father, we lift up our church to you. We lift it up to you for provision and for growth and for guidance and for discipline. Please keep us on your path. Please bless our children. Please keep them safe. Please guide them in your ways. Please help us to be good spouses, the husbands and wives that honor you. We ask all of that in the name of the gift